Our passage today is going to be out of 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11. You can be turning there. Let me tell you a little secret. A little secret about myself. I forget the gospel all the time. I forget the gospel all the time. There, I've said it. Does that surprise you? Maybe you forget it too. The, I think, how can I forget the gospel? I've been a believer for 21 years. I have spent 18 years on doing intercessory prayer on intercessory prayer teams. I've led small groups for 15 years. I went to seminary for three years. I'm about to get ordained in the next couple of weeks. How can I forget the gospel? But functionally, very practically, I can live all the time as if Jesus Christ did not die for my sins. I can live all the time as if Christ did not rise from the dead, as if my hope isn't assured. I can forget the gospel all the time. In our passage today, out of 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, Paul's going to tell us what's of first importance. And then we're going to read that whole section. I'm really going to focus on verses 3 and 4. So today is what I want to talk to you about is the gospel. What is the gospel? What are the implications of the gospel? And what are the effects of the gospel in our lives? I want to make sure we all understand what the gospel message really is. Because that will make all the difference in your faith. Let's look now at 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of all, most of whom are all still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let me uh, pray for just a moment. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you. for the Apostles Paul's faithful preaching and his faithfulness even in his letters to convey what is of first importance. That Jesus Christ died for our sins. That He was buried. And that that You rose Him from the dead on the third day. Lord, would You today 
Make clear your Gospel. Make clear the implications of the Gospel. Make clear the effects of the Gospel. Would You bless Your people today, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to, sh- so as you're thinking, dude, why are you telling us about the gospel? I want to put a slide up for you here, and I want to share some results of a survey that was conducted by Lifeway Books. 3,000 believer, three, yeah, 3, believers, people who said they were Christians, took part in this survey. So take a look at some of these statistics. I think they're telling. of people said that faith in Jesus was the only way to heaven. Well, that's good. Except that 50% of believers said there must be another way. Hmm. Okay. 64% believed that God accepts worship from all religions. So whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're a Muslim... Wherever you're from, as long as you're worshiping God, that's good enough. It's all the same God, right? Hmm. I don't think that's what Scripture says. And in fact, if this is true, then 50% of Christians believe that the Bible is false. Because Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but me. 50% of Christians are actually believing in a heresy called Arminianism, which denies the Trinity. Because Jesus wasn't created. He is co-equal, co-eternal with God. The three-in-one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit has existed always, will exist always. They are one. If Christ were created, think about this for a second then he can't take the sin of the entire world upon himself because he's no longer God. Hmm. In this survey, if it's correct, 75% of those people who said they were evangelicals do not believe the Bible when, it's, when Jesus talks about in the parable of Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats, the sheep representing believers, goats representing unbelievers, that those people who are unbelievers, it says they're going to go into eternal fire with the devil and his demons. Well, 75% of evangelicals will tell you, oh no, everybody's going to heaven. Eventually. We're not reading the same Bible. We're not preaching the same gospel. To think that 50 to 75% of people who have said they are Christians are actually heretics is kind of scary. It's why I believe we do need to preach the gospel. And it is why today I want to bring that to you the gospel. And I want us to be clear about the gospel. I want us to be able to say, this is the gospel. I want us to be able to understand and to be able to relate that to your friends, to family, to people who might ask you. I want you to know what things are not the gospel. They are, if you will, implications of the gospel. Things that are true because the gospel is true. But they aren't the gospel. They're important, and you need to know what they are, but they're not the gospel. And then, I want you to know how we live because the gospel is true. So those are the things I want us to walk away with, the things I want us to focus on. So to start with this, what is the gospel? If a friend walked up to you today and said, hey, in a nutshell, explain to me, what's the gospel? What would you say? 
So some of us might, you know, be able to clearly state a few things, and that, that would be good. Some of us would fumble around, um, and some of us would not be very sure. It's the good news. Yeah, that's true. That's what gospel means. That's what that word means. Euangelion. Yes, it means good news. But, but that's not the gospel. There is a gospel message that is the gospel. So, if we were to look back again at what we just read, verses 3 and 4 out of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So, at the very heart of the Gospel, at its very core, is that Christ died for our sins that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead, all in accordance with the Scripture. That's the core, the very core of our Gospel. If you get nothing else today, that's the core of our Gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and he rose from the dead. Well, there's a lot, of, there's a lot that goes on around with what that just said. Because if you told me that, I would have to start asking you like questions of, well, why did he have to die? Hmm. Or, how did he rise from the dead? Or, where is he now? See, those are all questions that are part of the Gospel, as well, the answers to those are also part of the gospel message. So we don't want to lose those. But at the very core, Christ died for our sins. He was buried and rose from the dead. So let's look about some of those questions that people might ask you because they're going to help us flesh out the rest of the gospel. So to establish why Jesus had to die, we have to first look at who is God? And what's our relationship to Him? Well, that starts in Genesis 1.1. And what does Genesis 1.1 tell us? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hmm. Okay. God creates the heavens and the earth. And then we get down a little farther into Genesis 1.26 and He says, oh, and by the way, we, He starts talking we language here. Let's form man in our image. And then when you get into chapter 2, you see very specifically that God forms man. He shapes him with his own hands. He breathes life into his nostrils. We exist because God created us. So, the beginning of our understanding of our relationship with God is one that He is the Creator of the heavens, the earth, and everything that fills it. And He is your Creator as well. Which begs the question, if He is the Creator of all things, does He expect something from me? Do I owe Him something? Because the scary part is if, if He is truly the Creator of all things and if He created us, that kind of makes Him in charge of everything. That sort of makes Him sovereign over all things. And so it's a very good question to ask. Do I owe this sovereign God something? And the answer to that would be yes. In Deuteronomy 6, Five, it comes out very clearly. It says what God expects. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. How many of you do that? I don't. I want to, but I don't. In fact, quite regularly, the God I worship happens to be me. 
I want my way, and I want it now. And as long as I've got me in front of God, then I'm not able to worship God with all my heart, mind, and soul. So from the very beginning, I have a problem. When God created man, he placed him in a garden. And he created that garden. And he told man, hey, look, I want you to have dominion over the earth. I want you to be my steward in the garden. I want you to care for it. So God gives man a task. He's given him work. He put man here for a purpose. What about relationship? Well, he speaks with him all the time in the garden. And in fact, in Genesis 3.8, we find that he walks with man in the garden in the cool of the evening. What a cool thought. God walks with man. What a night, what, what an amazing relationship. So God is very relational. But he tells man something as well. He gives him one rule. There's a tree, it's in the center of the garden. Don't eat of its fruit. Because when you do, you'll die. When you eat of that fruit, Adam, you will die. Okay, cool, not a problem. One tree, center of the garden, lots of us things to do, plenty of places we can go eat tonight. We don't have to eat at that tree. I love to go out to restaurants. We're just not going to go to that restaurant. We'll eat at this tree and not that tree. This isn't hard. But man's heart from the beginning had a problem. And it comes out when the serpent comes and tempts Eve and Adam. Let's not blame it on Eve here. Who's right with her? The word says with her was Adam. What was Adam created to do? To be her protector. To be her guard. So the, snake, the serpent starts off on his little, his little thing. He tempts them and says, you can be like God. Knowing good from evil. And that's a strong temptation. Because I just said, we, me, I want to be my own God. And so Eve eats of the fruit. And then Adam eats of the fruit. And their eyes are opened and sin and death have entered the world. Welcome to it. It's our world. We live in it. And we will until Christ returns again. This is now our relationship and our position with God. We are sinners. What is sin? Well, sin is, is any time we rebel against God. It's the term that gets used when we take an action that is in rebellion against God's perfect, righteous, holy laws. So in short, when God has said, these are the things you must do, and we don't do them, we're in rebellion, we are in sin. When God says, these are the things you must not do, did I get that right? Yeah. Must not do, and we do them. Then we're in rebellion against God. That's sin. So there's sins of commission, sins of omission. Either way, it's rebellion against God. Likewise, sorry, the price of that rebellion is death. The price of sin is death and judgment and, as it said in Matthew 25, eternity in the lake of fire with Satan and his demons. And the real problem is that we're all sinners. We are all in rebellion against God. You might remember the story of Noah, and in, as it leads up to that, in Genesis 6, he says, the heart of 
a man, the heart of man in general, overall, is evil. And you think, okay, the flood comes, it changes everything, right? No, God repeats it right after the flood. No, man's heart is evil. That's who we are. That is our bent. We don't change. Many years later, God's going to give a law, His laws to the people of Israel. I know it's a big fast forward, but He gives His law to the people of Israel. But that law didn't change the heart of man, did it? No. It did give God's people a way to sacrifice for unintentional sin. That means sin that they didn't intentionally commit. Like, oh, my bull happened to run you over and break both your legs. Well, that's considered a sin because actually the first time it's not. But the second time, if I didn't take care of the bull and make sure it was in a fence, now it's a sin. But it's an unintentional sin. I didn't mean to do it. So I can make sacrifices for that. But... If it's an intentional sin, I go commit adultery, it meets with death, stoning, burning, hanging, all sorts of things. Intentional sin isn't played with. See, and the problem in the end with the law, and and Paul will talk about that, is it didn't give life. It was meant for a people who loved God who would worship Him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and it would be life to them except we are always in rebellion against God. And so instead of living under the blessing of the law, we wind up falling immediately under the curses of the law. And so it brings death. Romans 7, 10-12, Paul says, the very commandments that promised life proved death death to me for sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good the law is good it's god's law we're the ones with the problem we're the ones who are the sinner so here's the deal We need to live in obedience to the law out of love for God, but we don't and in fact cannot and will not. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul will go on to quote in just a few verses later the prophet Isaiah who 800 years before had written of Israel, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Paul picks this up and extends it to all of us. All of mankind. Not just Israel. And so, left to our own devices, we are without hope. We are sinners under God's righteous judgment. Paul writes in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death. We desperately need someone to rescue us. We need rescue And because we need rescue, because we cannot rescue ourselves, God sent His Son, Jesus. And Jesus is fully God. And Jesus is fully man. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul writes of Jesus, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, 
born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In this passage, we see that Jesus was with God from the beginning. We see that Jesus took on human form. Matthew and Luke in their Gospels give an account of his birth of Jesus. Luke will go on to relate accounts from his childhood. Jesus will, in fact, go through his whole ministry and be both sinless and blameless. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes of Jesus that he knew no sin but became sin for us. So that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. See, and that's, that's the important thing. That He didn't have any sin. He did live a perfect life. And that allowed Him to be a sacrifice on our behalf. If you had to die for your sin, you might be able to die for one sin. A life for a sin. But that would leave a whole lot of sin in the balance of your life that you would be basically going to hell for. I don't want to pay for my sin. I can't pay for my sin. Jesus had to die for our sin because we could not. Jesus lived a perfect life, obedient to the Father, because we could not. did that out of love to the Father and for us on our behalf. Jesus took your sin, my sin, onto himself at the cross and he took the just wrath of God poured out to its fullest extent upon himself. And God poured out that wrath against sin until Jesus was dead. But more than being the perfect sacrifice who was able to completely pay for our sin, his sin, his sacrifice, actually not just paid for our sin, but put us in a favorable position with God. So that God looked down and, and now looked upon us favorably. He wasn't just neutral because we had no sin. He actually looked upon us favorably that's amazing. And at the cross, as God poured out all of His wrath against sin, for all those who live by faith. So, when Jesus died at the cross, He died for all believers. All those who would place their faith in Him. And He paid for all of your sin. Past sin, present sin, future sin. Since you haven't even thought about committing yet, have been paid for at the cross. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. This is amazing news. He did it for you. He did it to uphold God's glory, and He did it so that God could be the just and the justifier of those now declared righteous through faith in Christ. This is good news. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved from the wrath of God. We are declared righteous. Would you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Your sin is gone as far as the east is from the west. It is gone. You stand before God declared righteous. This is not just good news. It is scandalous. This should not be allowed to be. That I get off scot-free for my sin. That someone else took all of God's wrath upon himself for the junk 
I have done, for the stupid things for the, that I have done, for the things I have done in anger, in pettiness, in jealousy, in wrath, in foolishness, that someone else would pay for that? But that's what it tells me, that by one man's sacrifice, by one man's death, the multitude of sins of many men are paid for. If you think about it, imagine you got an invoice at the end of your life. Do you know what your invoice says as a believer? Paid in full. Written in big, bold, blood-stained letters. Paid in full. That's who you are because of the Gospel. That is the first half of the Gospel message. But there's more. It gets even better. Because the second half of the message is that Christ rose from the dead. And because He rose from the dead, you also have the promise of rising from the dead. That when they put you in a coffin in the ground, it's not the end, it's the beginning. Let me talk about that just a little. In each of the Gospels, we get told about Jesus, that He was crucified, His body was placed in a tomb, a rock was placed over it. And then three days later, He rises from the dead. Mark, Matthew 16 and Mark 8, in fact, tell us, that Jesus said, look, this is going to happen. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And I'm going to raise from the dead in three days. He told him it would happen. In accordance with the Scriptures, he did that very thing. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that Jesus was resurrected by the power of God and that God seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Paul goes on to remind us in chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Think about that for a second. That is written in what tense? Dan, do you have that slide? What tense is that written in? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That is past tense. Done, deal, finished, completed, done. Now that's a crazy kind of thought. Because physically I'm right here. But spiritually, I am seated with Christ. I am at the right hand of the Father. When you get on your knees and pray at night, where are you? Well, yeah, you're in your bedroom. And you are seated at the right hand of the Father. It's not like you're yelling, Hey, Dad! Because if you did that, and my son did that, and I'm sitting right here, I'm going to reach over and slap him in the head. What are you thinking? I'm right here. You don't need to yell. Even in a good Sicilian family, you don't need to yell. I'm right here. Do you understand what that means? You are seated at the right hand with Christ in a very real sense, in a very spiritual sense. But to make it even more clear, what this means about the resurrection, Paul, talking to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, says, the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. See, there is actually a physical resurrection coming as well. When Christ returns, we will be given a new physical body. We will rise and meet Christ in the air. And we will spend eternity with Him. I believe my wife tells me that in heaven, her perfect body is a size two. 
I don't know if that's true, but that is what she tells me. Paul doesn't stop there, though. He goes on and says in his first letter to the Corinthians that they will be raised up in a perfected, imperishable body, one that doesn't get sick, one that doesn't die, one that isn't faulty in any way. And so Paul goes on at the end of that chapter and in this crescendo just says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory over through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ. We do not end up in a grave and stay there. And nor do we as believers have any fear of eternal damnation. Because Christ said, what's placed in my hand, what you've given me, Father, cannot be snatched out. Period. Done deal. Yes. Gospel means good news. And that's exactly what it is. And that particular word, euangelion, is used when a king, when an emperor, or a victorious general sends out news. And we serve a victorious high king. And he came to earth and gave the gospel of his kingdom. And it is good news. Amen? Let me quickly go into the idea that if that's the gospel, then we have implications of the gospel. These are gospel truths that flow out of that good news, out of that gospel that Christ rose, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. The implications of the gospel might be thought of as gospel truths. They are Truths that flow out, as I said, of the gospel. And my hope is to help you see how that works in the New Testament so that you can find them as well. So that you can look at the phrases and see, oh, this is how these things are connected. Now, Paul um, talks about and uses language like being transformed by the renewal of your mind in Romans 12, too. Or to be renewed in your spirit of your mind in Ephesians 4.23. And these implications are, are those things that are there to help you renew your mind. Okay? So let's take a look at some of these. What I'm hoping you'll see is that the, God, the implications of the gospel, these gospel truths that flow out of the gospel, they're not the gospel but they're true because of the gospel. And they are there to build strength, to strengthen your mind, to strengthen your faith, to strengthen your heart in hard times. So let's look at one. Dan, could you bring up uh, Romans 5.1 as our first example? It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my first question is, where's the gospel in this? Well, let me help you. It's our first one. So through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? We've been, because of what Christ did, we have been justified before God, and we have peace with God. Now that's not the gospel. That's the result of the gospel. That's the implication of the gospel. It is true because the gospel is true. We have peace with God because, of, because Christ died for our sins. Because He rose again. Because He did that, we are declared righteous. 
We are justified before God, meaning that when God looks at us, he finds no reason to declare us guilty, but instead declares us just. That's what's going on here. So we are declared justified, and we have peace with God. That is a result of the gospel. What about Romans 8.1? It says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel message says that the wrath of God was satisfied. It was completely poured out on His Son. The implication or the result of that gospel message is that those who place their faith in Jesus, for those who place their faith in Jesus, they are justified before God. They are not recipients of condemnation and wrath. So when Satan points out your sin, and he will, he does, and tries to condemn you and say, you're not good enough, you'll never be good enough, God doesn't love you, You can say, you're absolutely right, I'm not good enough. Therefore, I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ who was good enough and I am loved because I am declared just, I am declared righteous. There there is no condemnation. And it's probably the one time you can say, so Satan, go to hell. And get away with it. Because you're standing just. You're righteous. There is no condemnation. Now the Spirit does convict. Understand, there's a difference between those things. Condemnation stays on you, and it's like, think of it like somebody just threw up on you. It's like, and I'm now covered in this stuff. I used to work in an ER. It's gross, and it stinks, and you can't get it out, and it's like all night long, you're standing there, and even if you wash it out, you just smell it. It's on you. Condemnation just sticks on you, and you can't get rid of it, and Satan just heaps more and more and more of it. Like your guilt on top of you. It's not how conviction works. Conviction is clean. It says, the Holy Spirit says, you need, there's stuff you need to get right. And it's God's kindness that he leads us to conviction so that it leads to repentance. So that we can be reconciled and right with God. Think of it this way. You put your arm through a plate glass window. Very painful, I know. What does your arm look like when it heals? It's got some like really ugly scars on it. They're big, the big thick scars. Right? Because it just doesn't, it's jagged cuts. It doesn't heal well. Even if they stitch it, it just gets these jagged cuts. Now imagine on the other hand, you've got to have some surgery on. There's a scalpel. It goes in, it makes the precision cut. It gets sewed back up and heals. What does that look like? Compare the two. few years you might not even see that anymore it's so clean this will always be a reminder conviction is clean it leads us to repentance and heals quickly because we're reconciled with God condemnation just leaves ugly scars and never heals right okay So one more, Ephesians 1.5. It says, In love, he predestined us for adoption through Christ according to the purpose of his will. Where's the gospel here? The gospel message says God sent his son to live out a perfect life. <laughs> On our behalf and to die for our sins. God did that out of love. Out of love, he adopted us into his family. God's family. So the gospel here is what? Through Jesus Christ. Because he died, because he was raised from the dead. Those things are true. We're adopted into God's family. So, Dan, could you go to the the next two slides real quick? Throw up the first one here. I want you to get an idea of the implications of the gospel. These, these are just, not all of them, these are just a few of them. But go ahead and look at them. Here's a list. Because the gospel is true, 
because of the gospel message, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, filled with the same power that raised Christ from the dead, no longer dead, but alive together with Christ, saved by His grace, raised up with Christ, seated with Christ, no longer far off, but have been brought near, reconciled to God. You have access to the Father. You are fellow citizens with all the saints. You are members of God's household. You are fellow heirs and partakers in the promise. Because of what Christ has done, you have boldness and access to the throne of God with confidence. You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified, you are redeemed. You have been set free from the hold of sin and death. You are a new creation. And that's just the beginning. That's just a few of them. Brothers and sisters, this is a glorious gospel. And these are glorious truths. The last thing I'm going to do, and I'll do it very quickly, is how this affects our conduct. Because we can't be believers and not be changed. Right? We are a new creation in Christ Jesus, therefore there must be new ways of living. And so, the gospel changes, the gospel message changes our gospel conduct the way we live. Paul talks about this uh, in his reference in Galatians 2. He meets with Peter in Antioch. He sees that Peter is treating the uncircumcised believers differently than the Jewish believers who had been circumcised. Paul says, your conduct in the Gospel is all wrong. That's not acceptable. You're holding the law up is more important than what Christ did and what He accomplished. Your conduct is incorrect. Let me give you a couple examples of how we might do this. Let's look at Galatians 6, 18-20. If you could bring that up, Dan. This passage says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality or the sexually immoral person sins against his own body? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you that you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Okay, so where's the Gospel? Where's the Gospel message in this? It's the same sort of drill. You've been bought with a price. Christ died for your sins. Was buried and was raised. Christ died for your sins. Okay, you were bought with a price. Therefore, because you are a new creation, because you were bought with a price, flee sexual immorality. You can't live the way you once lived. That's no longer acceptable. Let's look at Ephesians 4.32. It says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Where's the Gospel? Christ died for us for the forgiveness of our sins. My sin was paid for because of Christ. Because He died on the cross. That's the Gospel. As a result of that, I am to be how? One who forgives. I'm to be tenderhearted and forgiving because God forgave me. One more. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Where's the Gospel message here? Christ laid Himself down. Christ died for us. That's the gospel. There's the core. Remember that core we were talking about? That's the core of the gospel there. And because of that, in your marriage, it should change the way you live. Because we're to lay down our lives as husbands for our wives as Christ laid down His life for the church. Which was His bride. You and me. We're the church. It's not the building. It's the people. Right? So, that's the gospel. That's 
the way that gospel conduct is tied to the gospel message. Why is this important? Because when you read this stuff, it'd be easy to separate and forget the gospel. And just say, oh, I've got to be a better this. I've got to do a better job at that. Then it becomes works. Because you've separated it out from the gospel. Don't get caught in that. Don't get caught in that. The gospel message gives us the power to gospel conduct. Don't forget those two things. If you separate it, you're living under the law. I can do those things because Christ now dwells in me through the power of his Holy Spirit. I can do these things. So, in conclusion, if we could have the band come up. When we believe in Jesus, when we believe in his life, death, and resurrection, when we believe in his gospel message, then we are saved through Jesus Christ. When we are saved, many things become true because of the gospel. Because the gospel is true, these gospel truths are applied to us. They are there to strengthen and encourage our hearts and minds. They are there to impart faith and hope. But the message, the gospel message, must also transform the way we live. And that message must inform our gospel conduct. So those three things go together. I want to challenge you quickly this week. Dan, do you have a slide for that? I believe you do. Some things to think about doing this week. One, memorize 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. Because that's the core of the gospel we've talked about today. And you can always go back to it and you've now got a quick answer should anybody ask you, what's the gospel? Two, Identify gospel truths where Satan tempts you. Where he's tempting you that no, really you're not justified. You're not reconciled. You're not redeemed. We probably all have one or two that he goes after a lot. I want you to go and find a scripture that says, here's the gospel message and here's the gospel truth associated with it. And memorize it so that you can use it as part of that shield of faith. Right? And push back the enemy. The third thing I want you to do is identify one gospel conduct where you want your life to shine brightly. Identify a gospel message and then the conduct that springs out of it and then start praying that scripture. Find that scripture and then pray that scripture out. Last thing, if you want to be able to tell people about that gospel message, we've got a great class today at 12, going from 12 to 2 in the Judson Room. You're invited. Thank you.